Amen, amen. Grab a seat. Quickly, quickly, we got a lot to get through today. you got to be an active participant. I need you to go a little fast. I need you to open up to 1 Corinthians if you've got a copy of the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians, book of the New Testament, is what we're going through in this series. We're going to be starting in chapter 1, but we're going to finish chapter 4 today. Wow, I know, it's the biggest chunk we're going to do in this series, but I need to do it because even though there's a million billion things that we should spend more time on in this passage instead of texts, ah, you know, thematically they kind of connect. And so I want to go through them, but I also want to encourage you. I want you to find it. I want you to see it. I want you to be able to highlight as we go so that through the week you can go back and read. There's a part of me that feels like that is, um, you know, a bit optimistic on my part to think that you do that. But honestly, I hope that you do. I think that you should. The the reason that we get together and do this together uh, Studying God's Word, having somebody preach on it, is because it's not our idea. It's something that's been going on for 2,000 years plus. It's something that Christ instituted. So you don't do this because I'm teaching. You don't do this because you're a member of Hope Church. You do this because this is what God wants for you. God wants us together to be studying these words. So I just encourage you. You may not have had that ever modeled for you. You know where we're going. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're doing four chapters this week. We're going to continue in 1 Corinthians next week. Take a minute and start studying this stuff. Let it kind of get into you so that your heart's ready for what the Lord might want to say to you this morning. We do believe that the Lord might want to speak to you this morning from His Word. So here we go. 1 Corinthians, we're going to start in chapter 1 down in verse 17 as we kind of think about this theme of the church and worth the mess, which I I hope is an honest um, subtitle. I've, it feels like an honest subtitle for the way that the church works. If you're ever part of a team, it always kind of feels that way. You know, hopefully there's less mess and more worth, but, you know, it's always kind of a mixed bag. I mean, you've been on a basketball team or you've been in a, a business team, maybe you've been in a marriage where you're a team and you're pulling forward towards some goal that you have as a group and you're part of that team. You might be the leader. You might be the workhorse, you might be the ringer, maybe kind of the newbie that's learning. You know, kind of in your head, there's all those movies where they have the kind of the group and everybody falls into like the maverick role or the leader role or the kind of burned person that's hopefully going to soften by the end of the movie role. You have your role on your, you know, team of accountants or whatever. You're the maverick accountant and somebody else is, you know, the real clean cut, rule following accountant. And you kind of have these battles, odd couple battles as you work together to accomplish the goals that you have as a team. And as you do that, again, it's a mixed bag. It's powerful. You do more than you can do alone. It's difficult. There's interpersonal issues. There's issues based on what you think might fix the team in order to win the game, in order to hit your numbers, in order to, you know, provide a place for your kids to grow up. The church is a team. We are collective with a set objective. We're an organization with leadership and roles. And Paul looked at the church in Corinth and he saw a team that was in disarray. This is a team. Hope Church is a team. You may be new and that's fine. You may be just evaluating, well, is this a place I want to join up or not? Great. We're so glad you're here. But be aware of what you might be joining up with. This is a movement. And what we see at Hope, we tend to see people on kind of either side of a a gap. 
You have people that are just kind of keeping things light. You're around, but you don't know too many people. Not too many people know you, or they do, but they don't know you too well. And that's kind of how you want to keep it. You want to keep it light. Okay. I want to challenge you on that. But I can understand why that's appealing. Keep it light. You probably don't have a lot of friction with other people. You don't get a lot out of it, but you don't have a lot of friction either. There's also another group of people, and this group of people are all in. By God's grace, this is a really rich church, not necessarily financially. In fact, not at all financially, but a church that is very rich with talents in the sense of the New Testament, of people who have been gifted by God with gifts. They can lift weight. They're excitable and ready-to-go missional people that are committed to Hope Church. But the fact that they're in means there's more friction. Both of those groups need what Paul's talking about here. The friction people that are about to pop and the not-really-that-involved people, there's no friction, but there's also no movement. What we need, and I don't see some huge thing on the horizon, but, but what we need is to hear God's Word to teams today. To hear how to fix the team that actually matters a great deal. I mean, a hundred million times more than any of the other teams we're part of. Because this team is what God gave to the world to proclaim His gospel. This is the team that's going to affect the eternity of the people you see around you. So we've got to get this team right. Let's hear what he says. Paul, as he goes in to fix teams, and I want you to channel your you know, business writing, your Lynchionis and your uh, you know, whoever else writes businessy stuff, and they, you have the way they're going to fix a team. See, if this is how you would fix a team. Verse 17, this is how we ended last week. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, here we have clarity of mission. This is a leader who is... He's not having any bones about what his job is. Now, of course, the church is too baptized, but he's saying that his particular role as an apostle wasn't to be the one who's baptizing everybody, but to be the one who is preaching the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's already a note in this verse that's going to get louder and louder as we keep reading that's a little bit discordant. You talk about a team, you want to emphasize the good stuff. You want to minimize the negative stuff. What he's already doing is minimizing himself. Wait, you're supposed to be our gifted, fearless leader. What are you saying, Paul? Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wait! If our job is to preach the gospel and our preachers, or the, way, the guy that's a way better preacher than any of us are ever going to be, Apostle Paul, is a little bit foolish, he's not even going to use his eloquent wisdom, and our message comes across as foolishness, then what do we got? Keep going. Verse 21. For since it is the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Come on, man. This is how you're going to rally a team? He starts by saying that the messengers are foolish, and then he says that the world hears our message as foolish. Verse 27 to 29, he goes even further. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You can say amen to the like humility that's in those verses, but do you really want to be the object of those verses? Do you really want to be the person that God says, hey, this person is effective in my kingdom because they got nothing. I mean, for me to do something, this is God speaking, for me to do something through this person is impressive. This guy's got no wisdom. He's got no um, impressiveness. He's weak. He is low. He is despised. And you're sitting there like, Okay, get to the good part, you know, turn that corner and tell him how great I am. Nope, he just keeps bringing us lower and lower and the world higher and higher. Is this how you would try to stop division in the church? That's the question, and here's his answer. You have to see it if you're going to let the medicine of these chapters hit the heart of this church. His question is, how do we stop division in the church? I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. Is, is Christ divided? Do we baptize in the name of Paul? He's arguing against division. And he's doing it by calling the message foolishness. It's not a foolish message, but it sounds foolish to the wise in the world. And then he calls those who are going to be the representatives of that message low and despised. If you went in to fix a team as a consultant, would you begin by undercutting your own authority and all of their capacity? Wouldn't you start by saying some nice things and maybe here's some things that we could look at and here's some communication strategies, compliment sandwich that group with all kinds of positive reinforcement? Doesn't seem to be here. Doesn't seem to be here. And that's important. Here's how it continues. Look at chapter 2, down in verses 11 to 13. The Holy Spirit, God, is the key. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? He's been talking about the wisdom of God, which is this gospel message that is inaccessible by the wise of our world. You you read the really, really, really wise people through human history, and they see aspects of it. They do. Go to old school weird paganism. They see aspects of it. It's God's truth everywhere. It's beautiful. It's in your heart. You're calling out. He's put eternity into the heart of man. You, You can see in old school paganism, worship of Pan, all kinds of crazy, but there are elements there. You go through and you read Schopenhauer, that guy I was talking about last weekend. God help you if you have to. But if you ever try to, you're going to see aspects. But ultimately, rejection. Because you can't get there through wisdom. You don't go in standing on your own intelligence. You come in on your knees. Look at what he says. Nobody comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Do you see his answer? His answer is to say, not you, 
and not your eloquence, not the way you're going to present this stuff. God. The way that that unites a team of people is to remind us the one thing we have in common and to make very clear the one thing we don't have in common. He's saying the one thing we have in common is this Spirit, this Holy Spirit, knowing God. It's not about knowing lessons. It's not about knowing words. It's not about having phrases or arguments or, you know, premise, 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 conclusion. And it's, it's this unassailable tower of logic. It's about knowing God and introducing people to Him. It's about His Holy Spirit speaking through you. What we have in common is not things that we can celebrate about each other. We love each other and love values other people. But do you understand that what calls us together is not our competency? What calls us together is not our morality. I think people look and they think that's what we think. They think we're all together because we're going to congratulate each other on our, you know, moral lives and sexual lives and financial morality and yada, yada, yada. But that's not what Paul says. He says that, in fact, the thing that kills the pride of the people is a vision of the Lord. It's knowing God and being filled by that Spirit. So that he says in verse 31 of chapter 1, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The way we fix this team, and it's what we're always talking about, is first by knowing the Lord. And you say, okay, I'm a Christian. Quit telling me to be a Christian if I'm a Christian already. Well, no. No, I'm going to keep telling you that. Your head is slippery. You set something on it and zoop, it just keeps going off. Mine is too. That's why when you read through the Bible and I preach Bible, because that's what we do at Hope Church, we just preach Bible, we keep saying the same things. Why are you doing that? Because the Bible keeps saying the same things. Why do they do that? Because they know we keep forgetting the same things. So if we're going to be united as a people, if we're going to fix divisions before they even happen. By God's grace, I'm not preaching at somebody in particular this morning. But if we're going to fix division in the church, if we're going to unify, if we're going to jump over that gap from uncommitted and unfrictional, frictiony? I don't know. What's the right word there? In your attempt to fill in that gap, hopefully you're understanding with greater clarity than I would make it. Person over here who is low impact and low problems person over here who is high impact and high problems. In both of those cases, what do we need? Well, we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to call you from one side to the other. We need the Spirit when you're over here to take out that pride that makes things so difficult to live with. We hinted at that last week, but Paul's going to push on that further and further. The first thing we do, we're going to fix this team is know the Lord. But the second thing that we're going to have to do if we're going to fix this team, and this is just ways in which we're going to attack the pride that we are constantly inflating ourselves with, and I use that word on purpose, and I'll continue to use it here in just a second, is we have to reject the judgment or the honor of man. We've got to follow the Spirit, but we've got to deny something that we were getting from other people. We're going to get something from God that we were getting, whether in the negative, judgment, or the positive, honor from other people. Listen to how Paul talks about this. Chapter 3, starting verse 2. 
I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? See what he's saying there? Again, he starts with kind of a kick on your pride. You know, if you're going to pull him aside and give him notes on the sermon, who would ever do that, right? But if you were, you would say, Paul, Polly, Paul, don't start by calling them babies. Well, you little babies, can't even eat meat. You got to go come back with milk. Paul, he starts with the insults. He continues with the insults. What is his... What's his issue? What's his main goal here? Well, even the insults are helping to make his point. I mean, I don't think it's insults in the fact that he's calling them something they're not. What is the cotton-headed ninny muggins? He's not calling them something they're not. He's correctly identifying something that is wrong. And it's hard to hear, but it's also true. And why is he saying that? He's saying, look, I can see it. The division that is among you is not why you say you're divided. You say you're divided because I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. We kind of broke down some of those categories and what they could have been on the surface. Paul's saying that's not why. The reason that you're dividing is because you're infants in the faith who are still just eaten alive with jealousy towards one another and strife. That's actually your problem. It's not a mental problem. It's a heart problem. It's a problem with other people. It's a problem that we constantly see in religion. Religion says, he must increase and I must increase. That's religion. Listen carefully here because it sounds pretty similar to what we're talking about. But on everybody's chair, it says religion versus the gospel. And you're saying... Isn't those, aren't those like synonyms? Yeah, I mean, kind of. But we're trying to make a category break because there's wolves in sheep's clothing all over the world and all, all throughout human history that say, this is the gospel. But if you get close to it and you think it's a, a sheep, no, it's not. It'll kill you. There is a difference between religion, which says he must increase and I must increase. I'm going to lift high the name of God because as I lift high the name of God and I'm an impressive person on his team, people and God will lift high the name of me. That's what religion says all the time. I will be righteous and the people that see my righteousness will give glory to me and my Father who is in heaven. Well, that's... That's a problem. It looks religious because you're doing religious things and you're proclaiming religious proclamations and you're, you're casting out demons and you're prophesying in his name. But when he stands before you, when you stand before him, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You put on the headdress of Christianity. You spoke like someone who is a Christian, but you never actually knew Christ. How do I know? Because he must increase and I must increase is not the same as what John the Baptist preached, John 3.30, which says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The reason I bring that up is because it sounds a lot like what Paul's been doing to this point, doesn't it? 
Some of the verses that we've kind of had to skip over are where Paul not only undercuts saying, I'm not going to preach with eloquent wisdom, but only by the power of the cross. He also talks about himself and Apollos as nothing. They're just fellow workmen. He decreases himself. He certainly decreases the Corinthians, doesn't he? Why? That's what religion should be. That's what true following after God looks like. It's a realization that He is God, and at our best, we are just mirrors of His glory to the world. We're not originators of any glory whatsoever. He must increase. I, as I, I, as separate from Him, I, as not reflecting Him, must go away, must decrease Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And you're saying, Paul, if you do that, what are you getting out of your ministry? Where's the glory in it for you? Where's the good in it? I mean, I think that's the objection. I don't want to go about decreasing because if I decrease, then what's all the pain earning me? What's any of it worth? And Paul would say to you, from chapter 2, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Your problem, our pride's problem with receiving from God and it being about him and his glory rather than ours, isn't that we're not going to get something good. It is that we have to receive it rather than earn it. That it's a gift rather than a paycheck. This is crucial. This is crucial. Paul spends five chapters of a 16-chapter book on it. Is it 16 chapters? You can correct me on that later. Third of the text on this concept. It's essential. You're going to miss it. You have to see this. There's a part of you that says, I want to go to heaven. But if I go, I kind of want to be somebody. Like, I'm still the hero of my story. I'm still like the captain of my fate. Like, if I go to heaven, that's great. I'm sure, the food is excellent and the air conditioning is perfect, but I, I don't want to go and the whole thing for eternity be about somebody else. It can be about somebody else like seven days a week, but what about like, you know, the next day? Maybe then could it be about me a little bit? I mean, I'm kind of impressive, right? It sounds pathetic, but do you hear something that sounds maybe a little bit like what your own heart says at times? I mean, it's so hard for me to do anything in my home without trying to call Rachel's attention to it so she can go, great job, thank you for emptying the dishwasher, adult who lives here, you know, like, why do I need to pat you on the head every 10 minutes? Because I want it. I want the pat on the head. I did it. I want it. When you do anything here, there's a part of you that reacts in that same way. I know. I know. You see other people getting what you perceive to be that pat on the head. What do you feel? Jealousy. What do you create? Strife. Do you see? Paul's saying this stuff on purpose, and he's being relentless because this has to be everywhere at Hope Church. We have to perfectly understand. We have to constantly fight to establish a church that increases his name and decreases our name. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos 
for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. I'm sorry, of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's very important, it's very specific that Paul says there that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's making it very clear there is a gospel. You go beyond that gospel, and instead what happens is a puffing up, and the puffing up is going re- to result in strife, jealousy against one another. And the way that we're going to combat that is by understanding this puffing up and repenting of it. What is this puffing up today? Get a copy. I mean, I'm telling you, maybe 75 minutes, an hour 15, you can read a pamphlet by a guy named Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It is a wonderful, beautiful, quick, and it's not even a book, pamphlet on this concept, on this idea of, of Paul saying what it is to be puffed up because we have a self-understanding. That's necessary to be a person. You have to be aware that you are a person. If not, then you're crazy or, you know, whatever. But if you have the responsibility of being an individual in a society, you have to have some awareness that you are a person in that society. The word I in your head has to correspond to something. That's just part of being alive. What Paul is criticizing is not a self-understanding. What he's criticizing is an inflated self-understanding. That there is in sinful, Christian, or sinful humanity this propensity, this, this constant move, this, this habit of taking our self-understanding and puffing it up. You inflate this concept of who you are. You take who you are, and it's whatever it is, and you start saying, but maybe I'm awesome. And people don't tell me I'm awesome, but maybe they're all wrong. You know, there's no facts here, but there's desire. And you're, you're inflating this concept of who you are. Take a minute and just look at all the stuff that you watch. How much of the stuff that you watch that is straight entertainment is straight wish fulfillment of you being more awesome than you think you are? Of being Luke Skywalker on Dagobah and shooting lasers or whatever, and then somebody coming up and saying, no, the universe depends on your great skill and forcing or whatever. Oh. What is the wish fulfillment of that? You're a wizard, Harry. Oh, you must kill Voldemort, Harry. Yeah, yeah, I am really important. Do you see what you're feeling along with them? You feel it. We feel it. There's a puffing up and an inflating like a balloon. Well, what happens when your self-esteem is puffed up like that? What happens when part of your own body is distended in some unhealthy way? Super sensitive. Ha, ha, don't, don't touch it. Can you imagine if you get an infected place on your skin? What is that like? I did that in a factory in Louisville, Kentucky. I flipped over this big car part and it landed on my finger. And I was like, oh man, it hurt my finger. And the next day it just got worse and worse. And I kept trying to like protect it because I assumed something was wrong like on the inside with bones and stuff, but it was infected. And if you grazed it, it hurt like anything. The only way to fix it was to puncture and deflate it. It's extremely painful and gross. That's what Paul is describing your self-understanding as. It has inflated. It has become something distended. It's not what it should be. 
And do you understand what it's like for a group of people to all have their heads like that and to try and walk around amongst each other? I mean, you, who, who even has the space for it, you know? I mean, and you get one somebody that's really, then they got to use the garage door. They can't use the regular door. Because, and how do they get near other people? Put to, today's sermon together with last week's. How do you get around other people when other people are porcupines? Uh-oh. If you have a distended self-worth and everybody around you has literal needles poking out of their bodies, then you're constantly concerned about getting punctured. You got to hide who you are. You got to keep distant from who they are. Nope, not in the gospel. The gospel response is not to disappear. The gospel response is not to hide yourself. The gospel response is to deflate your pride. And that's why Paul spends five chapters doing that. You and I have to deflate our pride. Paul, and this is such a beautiful way of doing it, I mean, he argues against the cultural understanding that says, you have to be you. You have to define who you want to be and what value is in your case. And you can define it however you want, and you're going to probably define it in a way you already can kind of lie to yourself that you're good at it, so that you can inflate your head as large as possible. We all need as much self-esteem as possible. And you think of yourself, the, the culture wants you to be a king or a queen in your own right, a nation of kings. And Paul uses sarcasm in a really, really nice way. He says in verse 8, already you have all you want of chapter 4. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Sarcasm, I had a friend say in a really biting way because he was really mad at me. He said, sarcasm is not a fruit of the Spirit because I had said something really sarcastic to him. And he's right. You know, go read the little list in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. There's not a sarcasm there, but God uses it. So, you know, here we go. Paul is saying, you're not kings. I know that you think you're kings. I know that you think you're really, really important. And would that you were actually kings, because then maybe you could throw a little love our way. Because Paul and Apollos are out here scratching the dirt, trying to make something happen. No, we have to reject the judgment and honor of people. Really, like the, the... kind of key text for this is, again, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. With me, Paul is saying, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. And the culture says, amen. Yes, they cannot judge you. You be you. Then Paul goes further and he says, but I can't judge me either. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I don't even judge myself. I'm not thereby acquitted, though. I don't judge myself is even more confusing to our culture because they go, wait, then how do you win? Who do you beat if you can't even create a system that you're better than and for other people? Well, he says, God judges me. And if God judges me, then I've got to go back to the gospel. The gospel that says in verse, chapter 1, verse 22 to 24, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What we preach is a new identity that is given you in Christ. What we preach is that people who had very distended, very proud, puffed up concepts of who they were, pressed Jesus Hey, you think you're the Christ? How can you be the Christ? And they eventually crucified Jesus. He allowed them to kill him. 
And he was pricking their giant balloons all the time, but he allowed them to kill him in order to make a way for big-headed people to deflate rather than be destroyed. Big-headed people like you and me, who think we're way more than we are, to come to God and say, well, you know, I think you're right, actually, and I have sinned against a holy God. I can't earn my way before you. I can't do anything impressive before you, but because of the love that you have shown me, will you please forgive me? And not only does he forgive you, he adopts you into his family. He spits his spirit inside you. He comes to live with you and invite you into his life forever. And it's so much better. But of course, you know, it requires that repentance. So what do we do with this? You know, I told you I was going to run out of time and I did like 10 minutes ago. What are we going to do with this? Well, you and I need to first repent and believe the gospel. Do you know him? If you're one of these people that's just sort of low impact, then take a second and ask that question. Do I know him? If you're one of these people that's super high impact, but you're feeling in your heart a lot of jealousy and a lot of strife, take a moment. You can be gifted. You can be really impressive and not actually be a follower. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know him? And if you do, here's the second thing I want you to do. Stay in one church for a really long time. Doesn't have to be this church. I hope it is. Doesn't have to be, well, depending on who you are. I hope it is. Uh, (laughs) Stay in one church for long enough to cross that gap and then have to fight that jealousy and strife that comes up and realize that you need to puncture some of your self-understanding that you need a new identity in the gospel, that you need to somehow kick off that desire for both the judgment and the honor that you get from people rather than from God. I think the best way to do that, I think it's the way that the Lord has given us to do that, is to stay in one church for a really long time. And yeah, you might be called somewhere else. You maybe go before David in that committee and get sent to Timbuktu. That's what Paul did, you know. If you actually read Acts 18 like I asked you to last week, you know he was only in Corinth like two years. And then he goes on to the next thing. You are released from this application point <laughs> if you're going to go plant another church. But if not, and I know there are reasons to leave, but if not, try to stay in one church for a really long time. Put down some deep roots and have a true effect on a community. And then spend some focused time examining the pain in your life. Sit down with somebody wise. This is a great group, community group exercise. Sit down and ask yourself, how much of the pain in my life goes back to this kind of puffed up concept of who I am? Maybe reading that little pamphlet, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller. Maybe just going through this repentance process as we take the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is something that God gives to His people through His church as a way to remind us again what Christ has done for us. What our giant heads made him have to do if we would be adopted again into his family. As we transition into this time of the Lord's Supper, we encourage you, based on what Paul's going to say later in the book of 1 Corinthians, that you would prepare your heart through repentance and also through the joy of knowing the Lord, remembering the goodness of his gospel for you. What we're going to ask you to do, we're going to have the band come back up, I'm going to pray. When I say amen, they're going to play for a second. I just want you to prep your heart, take a moment, and then when you're ready, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
You don't have to be a member of Hope Church. You have to be a believer and you have to be baptized. And the, the way in which Hope Church declares this is what Christianity is, it's a church ordinance. When you're ready, that you would come up, get the elements, go back to your seat, hang on to them. And the band will stop for a second. And I'll lead us through taking the elements together. But don't take this in an unworthy manner. Really prepare your heart to stand before a living God and remember what it is that he gave his body and his blood for you. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do ask that these would be people who are at Hope Church for a long time, that we become something of an exception to a lot of American Christianity by really getting to know each other and really kind of working through our fights rather than kind of maybe looking for our greener pastures. I pray, Father, that you would give us the humility that comes in, gosh, painful ways and, uh, and maybe not so painful ways, Lord like the Lord's Supper, where we remember that we can't bring anything to heaven, but you bring us by your grace and through the incredible sacrifice of your son. Let us remember what it cost for us to be forgiven so that we don't walk around seeing other people as more or less, but as other people who you might know or already do. And if you do, we become brothers and sisters together and show that love that you want us to show towards your other believers, Lord. I pray that you would do something big in Hope Church's life today. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.